You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. I am standing in your house. Eyes shut tight. Hands stretched out like I'm reaching for tomorrow, palms towards the sun, impatiently waiting for a gift you said you had for me like a kid waking up on Christmas morning. This gift you said would change the world. This gift you said would change my world like a baby's first breath, like bows to an altar and rings on fingers. You tell me to open my eyes and look carefully at my palm. And just then, my heart starts to beat fast like it's on a racetrack. Arms shaking with excitement like unsteady earthquakes. My eyes then flash open. I look at my palms and I see a seed. A mustard seed. What is this? A seed? Really a seed? You said this gift was supposed to change the world, and you give me a seed? Ooh, I knew I shouldn't have trusted you. You lied to me. And before my rant turns completely sour, you stop me with the type of kindness that I know I don't deserve right now. You even tell me that it's okay to be angry with you, and then you tell me to look closer at my palm. And so I look. And I look. I look, and then I begin to see, I see faces, and music, and hands stretched towards the clouds, hearts open like empty swimming pools waiting to be filled, I see babies' first breaths, knees bent at an altar, nails piercing two hands, and the blood of a man that makes us as new as the dew dancing with blades of grass each morning teaching me like to have faith. I look at my hands. I see a seed. A mustard seed. And in your eyes, I finally see that faith to change the world starts with a seed. What a powerful thought. And we've heard that the greatest of gifts can come in the smallest of packages, and there's no doubt that at times that can be true. One thing we know is that a seed is powerful, so powerful, in fact, some have said that a seed is the source of life itself. And though we know that the source of life is the one who created the seed itself, we also know that seed is the vehicle chosen by God for the work of multiplication. When God created the world, and in it he created the first garden, For the first man and first woman, he created fruit trees for them to eat. But God in his genius, though he could have handed them a basket of fruit every time they got hungry, he instead decided to create a seed that he would put into the ground. It would grow into a tree and produce fruit continually. And contained inside of that fruit was another seed that would go into the ground and produce yet another tree, one seed for one tree that would create hundreds of pieces of fruit and all of the fruit would contain even more seeds to go back into the ground to produce many more trees. And so the process goes. And such was the case with Adam and Eve inside of them was the seed, a divine seed, which was designed with the purpose of having them each and together imaging the God who made them. 
But the works of the devil were already underway. And using deception and temptation, he lured first Eve and then Adam into sin. And because of their sin, the seed was corrupted. Their seed was distorted. And that which began as imperishable in an instant became perishable. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. And so the Lord God, Yahweh, said to the serpent who deceived them in Genesis 3.15, it said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you will bruise him on the heel. And though the seed of man had become corrupt by the seed of Satan, the seed of sin, the seed of death, there was a plan put in place to bring about another seed and that seed would grow and though the serpent would bruise his heel he Jesus the seed brought forth by the spirit of God through a woman named Mary would bruise the head of the serpent the seed the seed it always comes back to the seed Jesus himself uses the idea of seed to explain the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 he says this the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed into his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The seed of the kingdom of God may indeed be very small, but its expanse has become larger than any other source of life and peace and shelter that the world has ever known, and yet... There's something else that Jesus tells us about a seed in John chapter 12. He says, truly I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago for all that was lost. Lord, we love you, and we're honored to be in your presence and part of your plan tonight. Would you come? Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Would it be your words on my mouth? And would the people here in this room hear what you have to say to them, whether I say it or not? Give us ears to hear and a heart ready to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and it's definitely an honor and a privilege to be able to speak to you at any time, but especially at this time. It's a weighty time that we've come to, to to wrestle with the cross. But I want to thank you for being with us on this Good Friday. I want to take the next few moments to talk a little bit more about the seed, about the crushing, but also about the future. So we've talked about the seed already, but I want to go back into that 12th chapter of John and take a little closer look with a little bit more context. I hope you came ready to read the Bible tonight, but if you didn't bring yours with you, we'll have most of it on the screen for you. John chapter 12, where we're going to jump in, the story picks up, <clears throat> excuse me, after what was described as the triumphal entry of Jesus. He'd just come riding into town on the back of a colt, a donkey, to fulfill Zechariah's promises, prophecy, excuse me. He'd also recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and after seeing that, there were two camps of people, those who wanted to kill him and those who wanted to see more. Wanted to crown him as their king right then and there. So with all that in the background, John 12, 20 picks up at this point. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the, the feast, the Passover feast, there were some Greeks. And so these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
So Jesus, uh, Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And going on in verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You see, what Jesus was trying to tell him is that he was the seed. He said, I'm the seed that has to go into the ground and die in order that I can multiply myself. But they didn't understand. He had tried to tell his disciples at many points in many different ways exactly what was going to happen to him. But either they couldn't or they just wouldn't hear what he was saying. In fact, one exchange we read about in Mark chapter 8 got so tense that after Jesus was painfully clear that he was going to die, the Bible says that Peter rebuked Jesus, which then, of course, caused Jesus in turn to rebuke Peter, uttering the now famous phrase, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now fast forward to Mark chapter 9, and we find Jesus again being very explicit. In verse 31, he says, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The Bible says they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. You see, they were used to Jesus speaking in parables, and so when he said something this clear, they thought, he's just telling another parable. This must be a saying that we haven't heard before. Have you heard this? Have you heard this? Nope. I'm scared to ask. How about you ask? I'm not going to ask. But there was no secret about it at all. He's trying to tell them what's getting ready to happen. Skip one more chapter, Mark chapter 10. We see him basically say the same thing again. Verse 33, he says this. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. After this scripture, they don't even know what to say. And a couple of disciples start asking for favors. Can we sit at your right hand when you ascend into heaven? They're missing the death part. And after all this, he later gives this example of a mustard seed. He must have been thinking, what else can I say to help them understand? So he tells this seed, this seed story about what it has to do, how it has to go into the ground. It has to start small. It may look like nothing, but it's going to grow into something bigger than they can imagine. He's trying to communicate to them, something is about to happen, and you're going to think that it's a a phenomenal defeat, but in reality, it's going to be a marvelous victory. He wanted them to know, but they just couldn't get it. Fast forward with me now to the upper room. Jesus had previously spoken plainly about what was going to happen to him. And in the parable of the mustard seed, he told them some of the why behind it. And now again, he's not only telling them, but he's now beginning to show them exactly what will happen. And at the same time he's showing them, he's inviting them into this strange new covenant. A covenant that involves blood, that involves crushing, but a covenant that involves blessing that they also could not understand. Mark chapter 14, verse 22 says this, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And they, and then he said to them, this is my blood, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew 
in the kingdom of God. See, at this point, Jesus had compared himself to a grain of wheat, but now he takes the product of the wheat and he tells them, this is my body. Now, I know the bread was part of the tradition, but I don't think it was just tradition that caused him to choose the bread. I think he's literally trying to show them what must happen to him. So you don't get bread just by cutting down a stalk of wheat. You have to take that stalk of wheat and you have to crush it. And you have to crush it. And you have to crush it some more until it becomes a fine flour. But then that's not the end of it either. Once it's been crushed, you have to mix it with other ingredients and knead it and knead it and mold it into shape. And then you have to put it into a hot oven and it cooks until it's solidified. But even that's not enough. You get out the bread and then this glorious, hot, fresh piece of bread now it has to be broken into many pieces in order to feed the many. Jesus is trying to tell them something. Next, he takes a cup, and he must have been thinking, this cup of wine, it's a finished product, and in a sense, he was telegraphing to them that he was about to finish something that they never could. But I think he also needed them to know that a little fruitfulness is never the end. I think we need to remember that as good as it is to bear fruit, fruit in of itself still has to be tested, often by the test of crushing in order to produce something that will last. We live in a time when everybody wants to be oil, but nobody wants to be the olive. When everybody wants to be that fine glass of wine, nobody's signing up to be the grape. We want the blessing, but we don't want any part of the crushing. I have to tell you that it didn't happen that way for Jesus. It's unlikely it'll happen that way for us. I want you to think with me for just a minute about the grape seed. The grape seed produces a grape vine, and the grape vine produces actual grape fruits. But the fruit itself isn't the wine. The thing that's so powerful about considering the grape and the cup of wine together is you realize the grape was raised to be crushed to produce the juice. And once the juice is all drawn out of it, then it gets put into a container, a barrel, a tank, a tomb of sorts, if you will so that it can be fermented, so it can complete its work and be as effective as possible. I think Jesus must have chosen the bread and the, and the wine cup to demonstrate that his body and blood, though they were blessings, they would only come about by first being crushed. See, Jesus was quite fruitful in his own ministry. And over three years of ministry, he performed many miracles, so many of which John says at the end of his gospel, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's a fruitful life by any standard. And yet, sometimes we forget that every person Jesus raised from the dead died again. And every person that he healed so they could walk or see or hear, their body still wore out and in the end they too found the grave. The temporary fruit was not why Jesus came. Though he did many marvelous things, that side of his death and resurrection was still temporary fruit. See, the only way for a fruit to remain is for the seed to go into the ground and die and produce another tree that produces more fruit, that produces more seeds, and on and on. And so the process goes. This is how fruit remains. Tonight, as we come to this moment, this moment of remembrance about the cross of Jesus, I think it's important that we take a few moments to look at his crushing, at his crucifixion, at the cross. 
anyone with any interest in the power of symbolism or the power of art, no matter your religious background. You could be an atheist and you still look at the cross and you may be just fixated on why does that thing have so much power? Strange power is still possessed by the crucifixion of Jesus, the power of the cross. This picture here of the standing cross in the ruins of Notre Dame Cathedral has captured the attention of millions if not billions of people around the world over the last week. In all of the pictures that have come out of this horrific event, why does the picture of the cross seem to capture the most attention? You see, the cross is a symbol It's simultaneously unmistakable and inescapable. The cross is eye-catching, it's inspiring, and it's powerful. We've seen it used in decoration, and we've seen it in a state of veneration. We've seen it hung around necks in a way that it was abused and misused. And about its power, the world around us is completely and often confused. And yet this cross, with all of its varied meanings, cannot be ignored. The cross of Jesus, it has worked its way into the world, and it can't be worked out. Long before, though, long before the cross meant anything to us, that Roman cross had a very different reputation. The symbol itself had different meanings. Now today, many millions of Christians either already have or will gather all around the globe to remember the power of the cross. But in order to really grasp the power of the cross, we have to first grasp what the cross was at first. For one, it was a crass symbol. It was a symbol of victory and supremacy of Rome. They would take over a place and line the streets with the crosses to communicate to everyone, we're here, we're in charge, cross us, you get the cross. It was a symbol of raw power, political power, military power. And it was deliberately staged to be over the top. They wanted to send a message. And it wasn't just about the killing, it was also about the shaming. And in this way, the shaming of Jesus perhaps was more excessive than any crucifixion before him. He was mocked as the king of the Jews. He was forced to wear a crown of thorns that was pressed into the skin of his head until his vision was blurred by blood. This Jesus that we all think of in so many different ways, he was beaten mercilessly, literally within an inch of his life, but they couldn't take it yet because he hadn't given it yet. On that first Good Friday, no one was standing around thinking, wow, what a beautiful moment this is. No one was filled with gratitude at the sign of two rough sawn pieces of wood projecting into the sky. Nobody there was talking about how glad they were that Jesus was dying for their sins or how marvelous it is that scripture is now being fulfilled. No, no one had thought the things that we think now. When we see the cross, we think of all sorts of things and whatever those things were that come to your mind never came to their mind in that moment. They were shocked. They were disgusted. They were horrified. And those who at that point who had hung on to every word of Jesus were hopeless and afraid and in great despair. Even though he tried to tell them in nearly every way possible, they still could not fathom what they were seeing. These early followers of Jesus, they had no paradigm for the murder of their Messiah. They had no paradigm for the death of God. 
When the disciples of Jesus witnessed his moment of crushing, it was beyond their ability to understand. And if we don't take time to regularly remind ourselves of the reality of what that moment was actually like for them, we'll miss just how revolutionary early Christianity actually was. Through this one selfless act of voluntary crushing, Jesus did what no one on earth could ever do. In the years that followed, this former zealous Judean by the name of Saul of Tarsus, who you now know as the Apostle Paul, he would write these words in Galatians 2. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You see, what to many Romans may have looked like just another in a long line of routine demonstrations of power and brutality, would later, and not much later, be seen as the single greatest act of divine love that the world has ever seen. Now, skeptics will come and say that this is just some romanticized, creative storytelling by the early Jesus followers to try to make sense of what they had seen, to try to cover their tracks, if you will, but that doesn't actually fit the narrative in many ways. Only one can I explain to you tonight, and that's this, that Paul was not, in fact, an early follower of Jesus at all. In the early years of Jesus' ministry on earth, Paul did not recognize him in the Messiah. He was not caught up in the waving of palm branches and the shouting of Hosanna on what we now call Palm Sunday. And he for sure was not standing there weeping at the side of Jesus' death. Paul led efforts to persecute and even kill early Christians who were trying to tell this story that though the cross killed Jesus, it couldn't keep him dead. Paul's going after those people. But later... Later, he was converted. Paul was a late convert, shocked into recognition despite himself that the brutal exhibition of the cross was not in fact the end, but that his God, the God of Israel, had in fact raised Jesus from the dead, thereby declaring that the cross was not in fact an astonishing defeat for a false Messiah, but it was a victory unto itself for the true Messiah. This is what Paul came to. He didn't believe at first. He believed later. His story was not one to cover any tracks, but to tell the truth for every generation that would come after him. Paul told the story of the cross as a victory, a victory paid at a price that we can hardly imagine. And I don't know about you, but I find myself needing to be reminded often and over and over again, not just what Jesus did, but why he did it. I believe that the answer to that question is that Jesus wanted a different kind of future, a different type of future, one where the seed of corruption inside of humans could actually be remade. In Colossians 2, Paul says this, and you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, the powers of darkness on on that fateful Friday night, they thought that they had killed God. They thought that they had won. But what they did not know 
is that by killing the sinless, perfect, spotless Son of God, they set him up to triumph over them and over sin and over death and to share that triumph with all those who would believe. Friends, this is what the Bible calls being born again. Peter captures this beautifully when he says, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed like that one in the garden that got corrupted, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Jesus went to the cross not only to deal with the sins of the past, but to reset the course for a new future. He stared down the perishable seed of death And he did it for us. Because as we sang earlier, he loves us. And because he loved us, he subjected himself to the beating, to the crushing, to the crucifixion. While we were still sinners at the right time, he gave his life for us. And this is the gospel. And this is the good news and why we call this Good Friday. This, this being born again, this regeneration of the human seed is how he captures the future, the new future that he envisions. And before we close tonight, there's one thing about the seed that I didn't talk about earlier, and that's the genetics of a seed. I want to close with this thought tonight because Jesus didn't die for nothing. And he definitely did not die just to get you to heaven. Despite what you may have heard, that's not actually the gospel. It's not the full gospel anyway. He didn't die to get us a little pendant that would get us through the pearly gates or to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card to stick in our back pocket and then move on and carry on as if nothing ever happened. He went through the crushing blows. He went through the penetrating nails. He endured the crushing of the cross so that a new kind of seed may go into you and into me so that we may live differently than we lived before. Titus 3.5 said he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, one thing you can count on from a seed is that when it goes into the ground, it's gonna produce, it's gonna create something in like kind. If I take a seed from the peach tree in my backyard, I go enjoy the peach and I take that big peach seed and I stick it in the ground, I don't have to wonder what it's going to produce. I could go to the plum tree, also in my yard, enjoy the fruit, take the seed from it and stick it in the ground and I don't have to sit back and take bets as to what's going to grow. The peach seed will produce a peach tree. The plum seed will produce a plum tree every time. That's all it can do. The seed, that's how it works. The genetics are inside the seed and the the genes inside the seed determines what the fruit's gonna be. This is what it means to be regenerated. This is what it means to have a new seed put inside of you. Say it a little different and maybe it'll become more clear what Jesus is trying to do. What Jesus is trying to bring about is a re-gene oration of the seed contained inside of you and me. This is what it means to be born again. Church, this is the good news. I can't put a new seed inside of me, but he can. He wants to. He did. And if it hasn't happened for you yet, he will. This is what it means to be born again. This is why we look at a brutal execution and still call it a good Friday. 
Because the seed that went into the ground at Calvary and now lives inside of me, lives inside of you. And when he puts his new seed into you, it's a seed with incorruptible genes. It's treasure in earthen vessels, as the Bible calls it. If you put your faith in Christ to be born again, you've been regenerated. You've been re-gene-rated. And now your new genes will produce something in you that your old genes never could, that they never would. That new gene might want you to come to church on a Friday night instead of doing something else. It's a new desire. It comes out of that new gene and that new seed. And this is how lasting victory. This is how lasting fruit, and this is how a lasting kingdom was purchased at the cross of Calvary. Instead of the sour wine that our lives used to produce, he wants to produce a new wine in us. The new seed attached to a new vine instead of our own will produce a new fruit, a new kind of fruit. But just remember, like Jesus, we're still called to pick up our cross. You know, I always found it ironic that he said that to the disciples before he went to the cross. Take up your cross and come follow me. He's trying to communicate something. I'm not the only one who's going to be crushed. But I'm the only one who can do what I'm about to do. And what I'm about to do is going to enable you to do what you need to do when the time comes. This means that even though we may produce fruit, we can still expect the, the crushing to come. But when it comes, when all of our fruit is crushed, and all the juice produced from it gets stored away, and that may be the hardest part, We start to follow Jesus. We start to produce new fruit. The fruit gets crushed. It produces this juice, and then it's locked away. And we're waiting. Sometimes we think maybe God's left us and abandoned us. I don't think so. I think he's putting that fruit away, that juice away, so that it can ferment, so that it can become what it's meant to be, so that it can have the effect that it needs to have. If you drink just the grape juice, it won't have the same effect as the wine who's had the time to sit and ferment in the darkness even. Sometimes that happens. But I want to encourage you tonight that even though you may have been crushed and everything that came out got put into the darkness, locked away, and you think you've been forgotten by God and by everybody else, that's the moment when your face should rise up and say, even in the crushing, even in crushing good fruit, and I know this waiting is coming, but in the end of all that, there's new wine that's going to come. And the new wine is a lasting fruit that will remain How many of you here tonight are glad that you have access to a new kind of seed? You have access to a new seed attached to a new vine that will produce a new kind of fruit. So even though the trials and pressures come, you can know that even in that time, in that season of crushing, in that season of waiting, God is producing something new and something lasting in your life and mine. Before we leave tonight, I want to take a look back at that upper room. And we invite our ushers to come. And in a moment, they're going to pass out the elements. And when they do, I want you to hold on to them for a while. Until after we sing another song. Don't take them yet. But when those elements come by, I want you to take a look at that bread and at that cup. When you look at them, I want you to think about the crushing that it took to produce the flour, to produce the bread that had to be broken for you to not hold it in your hand. And when you take that cup, we imagine the grape that had to be crushed to produce the juice for you to now hold in your hand. And I, I want you to think, I want you to think, just try to think about the crushing that Jesus had to grow through to produce a new imperishable seed of eternal life that he gives freely to you and me.
want you to think about the words of Paul once more. Through the crushing, through the cross, through the bearing of the seed, all of that was the Son of God who loved you, who was giving his life for you. When you consider all these things, then you can consider that no matter what today might look like for you, God's ready to come for you. Are you ready to come to him? Jesus already gave his life for you. He's done his part. Now it's our chance to do our part. The choice is up to you. Do you trust him enough to give up that corruptible seed that produces sour wine? Say, I want that new kind of seed. I want those new kind of genes that'll produce a new kind of fruit. Do you trust him to take that seed and put it into the soil? Do you trust him to be with you in the crushing? I know it's hard, but do you trust him? Do you trust him to bring about something new, a new wine that'll last? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? If you're here tonight, and you're ready to partake in the new wine, if you're ready to trust Jesus, maybe you're trusting him again or you're trusting him for the first time. Maybe you're trusting him for salvation, for a new seed altogether. Or maybe you surrendered to Jesus some time before. And it's necessary at this season because of what you're going through to say, you know what, I'm in the soil again, but I trust you down here. I'm being crushed again, but I trust you here. I've gone through the crushing and now I'm in this weird waiting and I don't know what's coming next. And maybe you just need to say, I trust you again. If you want to put your trust in Jesus again, or even for the first time tonight, don't look around. Just put your hands up, and I want to pray with you. And hey, my hand's up, because I tell you what, I wake up every day going, you know what, I need to trust Jesus today more than I did yesterday. So I'm going to pray for you and me at the same time. Jesus, I don't know why. In my fallen state, sometimes it's hard to trust you. Sometimes it's hard to believe the things that I read and even the things I've experienced. I doubt my own experience at times. But I'm coming to this moment and I'm again confessing, I believe in you. You are who you said you were. You are the Messiah, the sinless son of God who gave your life up on my behalf. Tonight I put my trust in you. And I pray for everyone here who's putting their trust in you for the first time or the hundredth time. And I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would come and water the seed inside of us. Lord, if there's those in this room that need a new seed, they need their seed regenerated by your power, would you do it tonight, Lord? Maybe they've thought they walked with you their whole life. They've been knowing all about you but never actually knew you. Would you reveal yourself tonight? Would you give a new seed, the imperishable, uncorruptible seed that only you can give? Would you bring about the new wine, God, the lasting fruit that remains that won't perish? God, help us not just to sit in a moment of salvation and punch our ticket to heaven, but to let the new seed with the new genes produce a new kind of fruit. May we represent you well in the world around us. May we not just look forward to the day when we meet you face to face, but look forward to walking out 
the front door of this church tonight and trying to represent you well to the world that we encounter. Maybe people who have never seen you. Lord, I pray when they see the people that exit this building tonight, they will see you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you even for the crushing and the burying and the waiting and all of it. So Lord, we know that you're using all of that for our good to conform us into the image of your son. We thank you for caring enough to go through the process you went through and to take us through our own process to be like you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.